You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. We're certainly glad to have you listening in today. And uh, this is time for David's pick and also the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And we have a veteran that was an 2014 inductee, the class of 2014, and um, his name <clears throat> is Ben Studdard Malcolm, and he was inducted into the Hall of Fame for Valor, and certainly uh, reading his reading his bio, one would easily understand, and uh, Ben, good morning. Welcome to America's Web Radio. Well, thank you very much. Good to talk to you. I need to have your sound turned up just a little more. Well, yeah, you may have to do it on your end because I'm about as far, as high as I can go on my end. Uh, you should you should have a button on volume control on your uh, cell phone there. Oh uh, yeah, I've got it on max. Well, uh, this is about as high as I can go. Yeah, we'll make it go. All righty, so. Uh, in, you were inducted in 2014, and, um, you know, I've got your bio in front of me, and uh, you're also blamed for uh, being one of the first, uh, you laying down the foundation for today's special forces. And I find that very interesting, because I can remember when uh, the Green Berets basically just started up back in my time back in the i believe it was in the uh 60s if i'm correct oh yeah it was uh, 1952 when they had the first special forces school formed at fort bragg but they actually started in 1951 they had an option to start 1947 uh, uh, with the uh, uh special forces mm-hmm. but uh, i mean with the uh of the, of the CIA. CIA 19, started in 1947. And uh, the Army had a chance to uh, start Special Forces, but they turned it down. Hmm. And so as a result, in 1951, when all of a sudden we went up to the Yellow River and came back, and the South Korean Navy discovered over 10,000 North Korean guerrillas or partisans fighting behind the lines trying to overthrow the North Korean government. They requested special forces, and we didn't have them. So as a result of that, we had to uh, form special forces in Korea with the 8240th Army Unit. And they reached out and picked up some people from OSS in World War II. Yeah. <laughs> and so they set up the first special forces unit over there, and they reached out picked up some lieutenants like myself. And they gave us two weeks of training before they shipped us 150 miles behind the lines in North Korea. Two weeks yeah, of training? One year course. Wow. That's amazing. Two weeks of training and they set you on the road, huh? <laughs> That's right, in the North Korea. Wow. You know, and I and I was talking to, um, uh, I can't remember who it was the other day, but, uh, you know, we at America's Web Radio are, are big into veterans and certainly big into uh, all of our military first responders and so forth and so on. But, you know, Vietnam has 
been in many ways sort of overlooked at this point, and uh, so has uh, even Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and we do special programs. We do a weekly program on uh, remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and uh, the thing about Korea, uh, and sometimes it's remembered even before Vietnam is, is I think it directly goes back to MASH and uh, the TV show that was on for so many years and talking about the Korean War or the Korean policing action. Did you ever buy into that, that you were just a cop? Uh, yeah, to some extent. Uh, and MASH uh, was a vital part of the Korean War because uh, it used uh, helicopters for the first time and evacuating uh, with their OH-23 and to picking up people uh, that were wounded and bringing them into the the MASH headquarters. And you went on with helicopters, right? Uh, yeah, I became a helicopter pilot for the Army. And uh, what? I, after you and I talked the other day, what have you not flown in a helicopter? You, did, you flew the Apache or, or the Cobra, one or the other, and then uh, you've also flown the, the most well-known helicopter in the world from Vietnam has to be the Huey. That's true, and um, I got qualified in quite a few of the OH-23, the AH-6, and the OH-58, and the Huey, the Cobra, uh, and they actually give me some flying time uh, in the CH-47 Chinook and CH-54 Flying Crane. The only ones I haven't flown is the new ones like the, the AH-60 Black Hawk and the AH-64 Apache. Hmm. Well... You probably don't really want to fly them in that uh, you'd have to be in a zone that you probably wouldn't want to be in these days. <laughs> That's very true. But, no, I think it's, it's uh, you know, and you and I kidded about or talked about the fact that uh, when I was in the in the service, uh, uh, my time, all of the, or I say all of the, most of the uh, Army helicopter pilots were uh, warrant officers as opposed to uh, officers. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, in fact, uh, it's interesting that I went through flight school as a, a lieutenant colonel, and when I graduated, I was already a full six. Huh. Uh, as a result, what happened is that the Army uh, had so many helicopters, pilots, they lost almost 5,000 over in Vietnam until uh, they didn't have enough uh, majors and lieutenant colonels they needed 50 full colonels to command aviation units and be staff officers wow and so in uh, 1970 they put out the word that, uh, that we could volunteer and we had 30,000 colonels on active duty and so as a, as a result uh, that we could volunteer at 3,000 that we could volunteer and I volunteered not realizing I was going to be selected <laughs> I spent one year learning to fly all the Army's helicopters. And was then assigned to the Combat Development Command at Fort Benning, Georgia. Which is also the jump school. Oh, uh, that's right. But you, ne you never jump out of a helicopter, right? No, but I jumped out of C-140s, C-130s, and a lot of other Army. I was uh, with the 82nd Airborne Division. I was a battalion commander with 82nd Airborne Division, commanded the first of the... 325 Airborne Battalion. Then I was also, my last part of the tour, I was the, the G3 
in charge of all the training for the 82nd Airborne Division. Wow. Uh, maybe I ought to take it from this angle. What haven't you done, sir? Again. Maybe I should take it from this angle. What haven't you done? Oh, well, I hadn't been a Navy SEAL. <laughs> <laughs> well, that doesn't mean you can't swim, I bet. But, no, that's uh, what a distinguished career. And, and it, you know, you had to wake up every morning thinking, gee, what's, what's my challenge this morning? And just commanding what you have commanded is uh, incredible. But uh, what, what was your favorite station? Let me tell you a little about the uh, organization of the 8240th Army Unit, which I've assigned to. Yes, sir. Uh, the 8240th Army Unit uh, had actually five divisions. Uh, one of those divisions was Leopard Base, so that's where I was assigned. And I, that was 150 miles behind the lines in North Korea. And uh, it had 11 different battalions. And uh, I had one of those battalions as a first lieutenant. Now, a battalion is supposed to be commanded by a lieutenant colonel. We didn't have any lieutenant colonels or majors or captains. So uh, just a few of us lieutenants were assigned to take over and run those 11 uh, different battalions. And uh, I was one of those. And uh, <clears throat> then we, I went on raids and conducted operations uh, all over North Korea. The second unit we had was Wolfpack, and it was down below Leopard Base, uh, and it was connected with the front lines, and it was connected all the way with Leopard Base, 150 miles behind the line. Uh, the third organization we had was Kirkland, and Kirkland was on the East Coast. And the East Coast uh, only had three islands. The West Coast, we had over 400 islands. So as a result, we could operate up and down the coast very successfully. Uh, but the Kirkland was a very small operation, and as a result of that, they had uh, deep water ports. Uh, and the people in North Korea thought that General MacArthur was going to conduct a second landing uh, like Incheon on the, on the East Coast. So they heavily defended the East Coast, but they lightly defended the West Coast of those 400 islands. That means that we could move a little more freely up and down the West Coast. The uh, fourth unit we had was TLO, Tactical Liaison Office. This was a cover name for about 20 North Korean guerrillas or partisans <clears throat> that we put on the front lines with each American division, and we had a special forces lieutenant or sergeant with that unit. They trained those guerrillas so that they would put on North Korean uniforms and North Korean ID cards and go back and forth through the lines into North Korea and gather information for the American divisions. Wow. Uh, they told the uh, North Korean soldiers that they made contact with that they were a special unit. And they had uh, a bag of supplies that was issued and uh, that they took in with them. And they gave all, gave all that to the North Korean soldiers. That included cigarettes, lighters, Mickey Mouse watches. They loved those Mickey Mouse watches. Huh. So as a result, we run that operation for two and a half years and was never compromised. Wow. So that was the type of operations that we were running uh, in North Korea. You know, Just one example, the 3rd Infantry Division, G2, uh, said, I've got a new North Korean unit and a Chinese unit divisions of battalions that just moved into our front area. I need to know the name of those two units. 
Well, we sent a small team out in North Korean uniforms. Lo and behold, they painted the sign. On the front of the sign was a North Korean unit, and on the back of the sign was a Chinese unit. They simply <laughs> stole the sign, brought the sign back, and gave it to the G2. <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm sitting here, uh, uh, reincarnated Paul Harvey, and I'm hearing the rest of the story. Now, what, you, what you're talking about, I, I'm, I thought I knew a little bit about Korea, but I never, I've never heard what you're telling us this morning, and I think everybody will be fascinated to learn what you're talking about. Let me ask, uh, you, you were flying back in, we, we know the, the, the Bell helicopter that's the bubble and all that that we see in MASH with the, with the two uh, side units on it to, uh, bring the wounded back into a mash unit uh was was any helicopter used for uh, a, as a gunship in in via in uh, korea no uh, not that i know of because they were very small like the oh 23 <clears throat> so they just didn't have the capability to uh, man any weapons uh, on there but well, let me mention the uh, the fifth unit uh, sure. that I, we were part of, and that was Baker Section. Uh, that was our airborne operation where we dropped North Korean paratroopers into North Korea for special operations. We didn't have any radios that would reach that far or could issue. <laughs> they didn't give us any radios. So lo and behold, we brought in 250 carrier pigeons out of Fort Gordon, Georgia. Huh. Uh, then we run it, ran a test. Uh, we took the first 10 uh, and... Uh, signed those uh, to 10 of our gorillas, and we attached uh, canvas bags to the leg of those 10 gorillas and dropped them uh, into North Korea with those uh, 10 pigeons. And we told them when you hit the ground, uh, the pigeon's got a plastic tube on his leg, write us a note, put in that plastic tube, and send it back so we'll know where you are and what you're doing. Well, we didn't get any pigeons back. So uh, it took uh, about 10 days before the first guy wandered out, and we asked him, uh, what happened to the pigeons? He said, we cooked them and ate them. <laughs> he said, those pigeons are not going to fly back to Seoul. So as a result, we had to run that training program and realize that we had not explained properly how those pigeons were going to work. From then on, we put on demonstrations, and we got all the uh, pigeons back with notes. That's funny. Uh, ben, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Ken, with uh, Ben Malcolm right after a couple of words. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're going to be coming back with uh, Ben and uh, Ben Malcolm in just uh, about a minute. Uh, But I wanted to take this opportunity to remind everybody that uh, Ben is part of it. And I want to remind everybody as we come out of this whatever we've been in with the uh, virus and uh, things start opening up more and more, one of the places in Atlanta you should definitely put on your calendar is the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. It's downtown in Atlanta, right across the street from the Capitol, and um, it's in the Sloppy Floyd building. And I can assure you that if you go there in the morning, you'll have a very delightful lunch. They have a great cafeteria uh, in the building, and... uh, You know, you'll have a good lunch, and you'll learn more and more about our real heroes that have served in many different wars, just like Ben and uh, his experience in Korea and Vietnam, and uh, he won, or he won, he was inducted uh, as for his valor in in his, during his service to our country, and uh, you know, as a country, we owe everything to, uh, in my opinion, everything to our veterans and all of those that have raised their hands to, to serve and defend. So whenever you're in Atlanta, Georgia, as travel starts back up again, be sure and put the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame on your list of places that you got to go and see. So with that said, we're going to welcome Ben back on America's Web Radio, and we're going to continue with his story of service in the military. So when, when uh, you've been in you've been in Korea, you've uh, gone well. You've had a, a group that has gone behind the line and ate pigeons, and uh, that was they they probably got tired of. Uh, of the uh, World War II, uh, you know, uh, square little boxes that the sea rations came in. They, so they decided to have something fresh. Would that yeah, be? Yeah, we, uh, we had some sea rations, uh, no doubt about that. <laughs> Let me uh, mention the largest raid I had in North Korea. Sure. That raid was on 14 July 1952. We had, uh, North Korean had a 76 millimeter gun embedded in a cave, and they would fire on one of my islands called Walido. Uh, so I had tried to take that out with the British Navy and uh, the Air Force. Uh, they bombed it, but every time they'd pull that gun back into the mountain, and we couldn't take it out. So as a result, uh, I trained 120 North Korean guerrillas or partisans and uh, coordinated with the British Navy to support my operation also coordinated with the U.S. Marine aircraft carrier uh, in the Yellow Sea, uh, and they provided three Corsair aircraft to support my operation. I was the only American on that raid. On 14 July, I took 120 North Koreans, put them on four large sail junks at Walido at midnight, and slipped in behind the North Korean lines on the mainland of North Korea behind that gun position, undetected. We were, I was the only American on that race. My boss, Major Tom Dye, uh, was on, now on the British ship, and he was controlling the naval gunfire uh, for me. The next morning at 5 o'clock, I called him and told him to fire the first mission off the Navy ship. So they started firing on the top of the mountain. Now, we were behind that mountain, undetected. 
as soon as they started firing on the top of the mountain, we started climbing up the back of that mountain. And uh, we got about halfway up before the first person had spotted us and started firing on us. I had three Marine Corsair aircraft orbiting about five miles out. I brought them in one at a time with rockets, machine gun fire on top of that mountain. Now, let, let, and uh, uh, as a result of that, every time they'd come through, we'd climb another 50 feet. Ben, let, let's identify that Corsair, because I, I love that plane. Uh, but that was the Black Sheep Squadron, and that's what they flew, was a Corsair. And it was a, a most unusual design, in my opinion. But anyway, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but uh, it's sort of, for folks that aren't aware of what you're talking about, we like to sort of clarify it every now and then. Uh, you're right. Uh, after they made three passes... Uh we were able to go into the top of that mountain, destroy that gun, and uh, destroy the mountain, and blew it up. But then we got counterattacked. We had to fight our way back to the beach. Once we got back to the beach, we had another problem. We had 40 civilians from a local village saw the fighting and was trying to get out of North Korea on our boats. Wow. We could not take 40 civilians that would have swamped our boats. We agreed to take 10 and sent the other 30 back to the village. The British Navy and the Corsairs uh, then supported us and got us out uh, of North Korea. We brought out a large amount of weapons and documents, and we actually brought out six oxen that we'd stolen from North Korea, and they were attached behind one of our boats, bringing them out. We stole a lot of their cattle in North Korea to keep them from farming the rice paddies. Hmm. I got a uh, silver star for that operation. The... Uh, <clears throat> We counterfeited their money in North Korea, unknown to most people. They actually shipped me up bales of counterfeit money that I distributed with my agents all over North Korea. We also robbed their banks, robbed their pay offices. <laughs> I got several pictures where we had some money. We robbed the bank, stacked up on the table, and we were in the process of issuing that money to our guerrillas where we would jump them back into North Korea. They would take that money back in and give it to the families and friends. They would spend it on the open market. It would flow back into banks, and we'd rob the banks again. <laughs> that was the type of things that we were doing that were not covered. Uh, we were robbing the banks, robbing the payoffs, counterfeiting the money, and stealing the cattle. Did, uh, did they ever figure out the counterfeit money? Uh, no, I brought back uh, quite a few stacks and turned that over to the Special Forces School at uh, North, uh, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, we actually, after about six months of reproducing that counterfeit money, you could hardly spend a 101 note in North Korea. We had the, we had the right paper, the right ink, and we uh, reproduced the 101 note so well until you couldn't detect the difference between the original and the counterfeit. Huh. You know, again, the rest of the story. I, I've never. Uh, let me ask on the on the weapon that you took out. The uh, was a movie made of that at all, or did the History Channel do something on that on that uh, weapon? On that? Oh, I don't recall. the uh, The History Channel made a documentary film on my book. I got a book out, like you said, and the History Channel made a documentary film on the twenty first of October. Uh, they announced the release uh, of a one-hour documentary film uh, on my book, uh, and it was shown on national TV on 6 November 2005, 
and is still being shown on the History Channel. Huh. The book is White Tiger, My Secret War in North Korea. And uh, we'll put... And the name you, of that movie is Heroes Under Fire. Uh, the book is a true story about Special Forces and the CIA operations in North Korea uh, during the Korean War. We were a joint operation uh, with the CIA uh, in North Korea. And as a result of that, uh, uh, Major General John Sinlob was one of my bosses. He was a major when I was a first lieutenant in North Korea. He was a CIA station chief in Seoul, Korea. Hmm. As a result of that, I was working uh, for him and with him. He wrote the forward to my book. And so you can read some of the things that comments he made uh, during that period of time. Well, if you'll send me a copy of the cover, uh, we'll put it in our uh, library for and tell us where the people can get it and uh, how they can get it and whether they can uh, get the electronic version of it or, or buy it at uh, Barnes & Noble or wherever, and uh, we'll be glad to uh, publicize it for you. Oh, that's great. The book is available on Amazon.com, and it's also a Kindle book. Okay. Well, we'll uh, we'll start promoting it. Send us a cover and email me a cover picture of it, or a picture of the cover, I should say. And uh, okay, so um, you're flying around in helicopters uh, in Vietnam. That was the first real gunship experience, right? And they uh, a lot of uh, a lot of folks uh, converted the Hueys into a gunship. And uh, it was basically a guy hanging out with a uh, fifty caliber, right? Yep, that's right. And uh, today we've gone much more sophisticated, and the helicopters can do th- things that uh, <laughs> that I don't think people believe they can do. And uh, physics says they can't do that, but they do them. Do you- yeah, very true. Uh, capability. Yeah. Do you feel like, I guess, uh, Korea really was, do, do you know of anybody during the Korean War that said we should use these for uh, offense as opposed to just defense? And uh, then there was a the transition over, and you had to be right in the middle of it when, when they did take the medevacs, the Hueys, and then started using um, the Hueys for gunships. And when, in that period, uh, uh, did they start converting, or do you think that somebody at some point... I think you're hitting your uh, um, telephone buttons there, sir. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay. Were you able to hear my question about converting over from uh, just medevacs to? Uh, and by the way, we always salute and and appreciate. Uh, I believe you're still hitting your your keys on your telephone, there, sir. No, I'm not. I'm, I got it laying down, not touching it. Huh. Well, maybe your cat's doing it. I don't know. Um. Anyway, um, the conversion from uh, the medevacs into from a, a, a defensive to an offensive uh, mode, uh, when did that? When did you really start seeing that in Vietnam? 
Oh, um, it was probably around uh, 1960, uh, 66. I was in uh, Vietnam in 1964, 65. So, um, I had a chance to, uh, to cover, you know, a lot of the activities that was going on um, in Vietnam. Uh, I landed in Saigon in September 1964 and was assigned to the 23rd Vietnamese Division at Vamituit, which was about 150 miles north of Saigon. Uh, I was a major at that time, and I was assigned, uh, we had a full colonel in charge of the 23rd Vietnamese Division as the advisor, and I was the G1 advisor and also advisor with the 5th Special Forces out of Natrang uh, for four months. Uh, I'd been there about four months, and Major General Sternberg, the J-1 and MACB, showed up for a briefing. And so uh, us four majors, G-1, 2, 3, 4, and the colonel, gave him a briefing. And after I finished telling him what I was doing, he said, pack your bags, you're going back to be my exec. So I got on the plane with him and went back to Saigon, and I became the... Uh, the exec to the J-1 at, uh, at Fort McPherson. Wow. The next four months, I traveled all over Vietnam gathering data uh, on major battles for the J-1 and uh, and casualties and giving reports to him so he could give those reports to General Westmoreland. I would fly into some areas and take fire going in my helicopter and actually use the helicopter to evacuate wounded out of the area and tell them to make sure you remember where you left me and pick me up. And they did. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> the next day, I might be back in Saigon, taking life easy, sitting on the top of a hotel, drinking a beer beside the swimming pool and eating steak. <laughs> uh, and then uh, three days, the best tour I had was they assigned me up to uh, do an evaluation on the Field Special Forces in the Trang. And they said, while you're up there, you can stay in General Westmoreland's house. Wow. We've got a house reserved for him up there, and uh, it's uh, got a, a cook uh, and a care, caretaker. And so I stayed in that house, and I enjoyed that three days, uh, you know, very much. Oh, I bet. I bet. <laughs> you know, uh, as you and I, well, I'll, I'll express my opinion. During Vietnam, I thought uh, General Westmoreland really got a... Uh, short, the short end of the stick, you might say. I uh, I thought he was a great commanding officer, and uh, I question I questioned back then, and I still question whether he was uh, he could have done more had he had a free hand to do it. I, in my opinion, but that's that's a that's a uh, E five grunts opinion. So we'll know exactly where we're standing. Yeah, I enjoyed uh, talking with him. I met him several times. Uh, I was uh, going to the Air Force War College, and he was a guest speaker up there. I had a chance to talk with him in a lot more detail uh, after Vietnam. So, uh, And I really enjoyed working with him, and he was a fantastic individual, and uh, I think, thought he was doing a good job considering the amount of pressure and the controls that uh, was placed on him for doing that job. Yes, sir. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be back with Ben Malcolm, Colonel Ben Malcolm, Colonel Retired, and right after this. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend 
is around town movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not so fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around town movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, around town movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's around town movers. Call them. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on America's Web Radio with our special guest, Ben Malcolm, uh, Colonel, retired Ben Malcolm, and uh, Silver Star recipient, also an inductee into the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. He was inducted in the class of 2014, so about six years ago. And uh, let me ask you, uh, Colonel, uh, uh, what did did it mean to you to be inducted into the... uh, Hall of Fame. Well, I think it was the fact that uh, I had uh, been with the 82nd Airborne Division, and uh, I had also been in uh, both Korea and Vietnam, and I had a Silver Star and a Bronze Star, and so I had. Uh, they were looking for people that had been in combat in both uh, Korea and Vietnam, so I met those qualifications, and, and it's interesting to look at some of the statistics on the uh, Vietnam War, because uh, initially we uh, had 200 American advisors there initially in 1955. And by 1964, when I arrived, we had 24,000 advisors in Vietnam. And then the first uh, American uh, troops arrived uh, while I was still there in in uh, 65, and 180,000 American troops came in. And by the time the Tet Offensive took place, we had 540,000 American troops on the ground in 1968. The helicopter war uh, was uh, first activities with the helicopters. Uh, We lost a lot of helicopters in that war. We lost 11,827 helicopters. And we lost 8,477 pilots and crew chiefs during that war. We trained 40,000 pilots. I was one of those pilots that was trained during that period for the Vietnam War. The first four soldiers that was killed, first soldier that was killed was in 1957 in Vietnam. We actually lost 58,198 soldiers, military personnel, that was killed uh, over in that, during that war. So as a result, that was a major operation uh, in that part of the operation. It's interesting that this, in 1950, we were involved in three wars in 1950. We were involved in both the Korean War, started 25 June 1950, and we were also involved in the Vietnam War as early as 1950, supporting the French. And we were also involved in Tibet, in supporting Tibet. The Dalai Lama requested our assistance 
and we sent in special forces and the CIA as early as 1950 hmm. to be able to uh, support. So those were the three wars that we were involved in. The CIA went into the airline business in 1950, approved by President uh, Truman, uh, but he did not know notify Congress. Congress did not know the CIA was in the airline business with 31 different companies and 400 aircraft for 23 years until 1973. <laughs> and that was after the Tet Offensive took place in 1968. So those are some of the interesting things that uh, we take a look back at in that history. Well, you know, uh, and I believe Vietnam was the first, and maybe not even then, but... Uh, you know, the, uh, our military today is basically supported by contract labor. And uh, a lot of folks don't know what I'm talking about, and I'm not going to explain it to them. But uh, it's, it's a different military from uh, 1965 <coughs> or 1970, and uh, it will continue. By the way, I wanted to mention, as you were talking about Vietnam and the number of uh, casualties, uh, the uh, Johns Creek Veterans Association, Vietnam Veterans Association, will be putting up the wall and will have a, we, they're getting the damage repaired and so forth from uh, vandalism, and they will be uh, having an open opening of it uh, in the near future. And stay tuned to this show and many of our shows on America's Web Radio, and we'll be announcing when uh, the Johns Creek... Uh, Healing Wall, the Vietnam Healing Wall, will be available. You can go actually see it now, There's, but it's under re, re, <laughs> refinishing and from the vandalism that occurred. And um, they're working on it, and they'll be announcing a date. And then they got caught up in the uh, COVID-19 virus on opening. So uh, it will be coming, and uh, we'll let you know when and uh, Hopefully, uh, Colonel, you'll be able to come out to it. Got some interesting comments on the Meg 15 that you may be interested in. Okay, sir. The Meg 15 in July 1951, a uh, Meg 15 was uh, shot down up uh, near Chodo, which is 150 miles behind the lines, and it landed uh, in the mud flats in the Yellow Sea. And when the tide was uh, in, it was under 30 feet of water. When the tide was out, it was exposed. Huh. So we brought in a, uh, a ship with a crane when the tide was in, 30 feet of water, and lifted that MiG-15 out and turned it over to the Air Force so they could evaluate it. The problem was the MiG-15 could fly faster and higher than our F-86. And the reason was that it had a Rolls-Royce engine in it that was made uh, in England and purchased by Russia. So that was the reason for those uh, those planes could fly that fast and that high. Uh, <clears throat> in 1952, um, a Meg was shot down up near the Yellow River, and my cohort, Lieutenant Jim Mapp, who we worked with, and he and I were together in North Korea, uh, and he was running his own uh, unit. Uh, he was uh, in the area and saw that Meg get shot down, uh, and he put his binoculars on it, and it was a Caucasian pilot and had to be Russian. So uh, he took his old sail junk and headed uh, for that plane, for the pilot. It was down, pulled his parachute, and he knew he was alive, he could get him. Well, it is now confirmed 
that in 2000, that uh, uh, that pilot was killed by a second Meg, and we put that report in, but nobody believed us. Well, this was confirmed in 2004 by former President George W. Bush Sr. He narrated a film called Stalin's Secret Air Wars in uh, North Korea. He said in 1952, the Air Force shot down a Meg-15, and the Russian pilot that was flying that uh, thing was fixed to be captured, and Stalin ordered that second pilot to kill that first pilot, and that pilot done that. Hmm. We now have confirmed that that was a true case. In September 1953, Lieutenant Noe, who was a pilot as the war was ended in in, uh, Korea uh, in 1975, uh, he uh, actually uh, was trying to get out with his uh, wife and five children in a small Cessna. Wow. So as a result of that, he was able to take that Cessna and fly it out and land it on the Midway. He came in and landed that plane on the Midway. And as a result of that, that is now on uh, Google, and you can look it up and uh, see that landing uh, on Google. Uh, I have talked to uh, Lieutenant No, whose new name is Kenneth Lowe. We paid him uh, $100,000 when he deserted with his Meg and flew it into Kempo. He came in so fast and so low until Air Force didn't pick him up. Of course, Air Force claims that, claims that their radar was down for maintenance. So as a result, when he landed, the sergeant major came out to refuel him and thought it was an F-86. Huh. And then uh, they looked up and it was a MiG. So they quickly put it in the hangar, took the wings off, put it on a uh, C-124, and flew it to the Philippines. There, Lieutenant, uh, uh, Lieutenant and flew that MiG uh, to Ohio, where it's uh, presently on display at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. I have maintained contact with Lieutenant No, now Kenneth Lowe, and he lives in Daytona Beach, Florida. And on uh, uh, in uh, 19, uh, in 2012, uh, Lieutenant No, Kenneth Rowe, wanted to be interviewed by Voice of America. I arranged that interview with Voice of America and that was broadcast on 28 August of 2012 into North Korea. Huh. South Korea listened to that broadcast and said it was very effective. I have talked to uh, Kenneth Rowe many times in South Korea and uh, in, uh, in South Florida. And so he is in good shape today. Uh, he has uh, three children. All of them have college degrees. And so as a result of that, that's a very effective program. And I still maintain contact with him. Uh, that's that's fascinating. Again, the rest of the story. Uh, you know, I, I doubt that uh, that uh, very many people know about that at all. And and uh, even though, like you said, it has been made into a uh, into a historical film, I suppose, or, or uh, there is information on it. But you know, what would you? Uh, Oh, I, uh, the one question that I always ask of a veteran is, uh, do you know if you've got a group of veterans together, of any one of them can tell just one story? <laughs> uh, I have never 
got together with veterans that t- could tell this one story. <laughs> I, I think that's uh, I think that's uh, some kind of law or something that uh, if if you tell me one, then I got to tell you two. But anyway, <laughs> what uh, in your with your in your career, what would you pick as the most outstanding thing that? Uh, it just offhand you remember or it comes back to you and you remember from anywhere um, you may be and maybe under a circumstance or something like that and and uh, something flashes back that you remembered from Korea or North Vietnam is there one thing that uh, you'll just never forget well there's a story that I'm uh, very recent. Uh, a guy named Mel Newman uh, was uh, a member of our 8240th Army Unit Special Forces in 1952-53, and he was uh, in North Korea. Uh, he left the service after about three years, and, and in 2013, he decided to visit North Korea. He uh, landed in North Korea on 26 October 2013 from China. That's where he had to go to get into North Korea. He started looking for some of his uh, former North Korean guerrillas or partisans, and it didn't take long before North Korea quickly identified him as being a part of our Special Forces team, and they locked him up. So as a result, he stayed locked up in North Korea for 42 days and got national publicity, as some of you probably remember. In 42 days, uh, he was still locked up in North Korea. On 1 December of 2013, CNN read my book. They gave me a call. They wanted to pick me up and interview me downtown Atlanta. Uh, they found out that I was a member of the 8240th Army Unit. So as a result, they sent a limousine out to my house in Fayetteville, Georgia, picked me up, took me down to the CNN Center, and interviewed me live from Hong Kong and played that worldwide. The next day, I was interviewed by BBC from London, and then I got a call from Beijing, China, on to publish my book in China. So as a result, Mel Newman was released from North Korea seven days later, and we really don't know why, because it was never been announced, but our sources think that China was responsible for that release, because Mel Newman's worldwide coverage was getting too much adverse publicity for China and North Korea. And they told North Korea to get him out of North Korea now. And that's what happened. Interesting. And again, the rest of the story. Um, I'm sure very, very few people uh, know uh, about that. And yet, uh, I, quite honestly, until you started telling some of the details, I had forgotten about it. But uh, I do remember it. And uh, you just never know what you're going to find out. Um well, it's, it's also interesting that he has uh, published a, a book, a Kindle book, and in that book he indicates that he has now got an itemized bill from North Korea for his time <laughs> served in that prison. Uh, they sent him a bill uh, for uh, uh, $3,241. <laughs> they even itemized the bill as to how much was for food, how much was for rent, and uh, also $3 for a broken plate. <laughs> That's interesting. Did he rush out to pay it? Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, let me let me ask. Uh, you were probably one of the first to wear a green beret, correct? 
supposed to wear what? A green beret. A beret. Uh, yeah, I was uh, the, the first member of the green beret. Uh, in fact, uh, the, my combat infantry badge, uh, I earned that in 1952. Uh, and you could only, in 1952, you had to be a member of an infantry battalion to get the combat infantry badge. So uh, none of us got the combat infantry badge. I didn't get that combat infantry badge until 1965, 13 years later. I was the first Special Forces soldier to ever get the combat infantry badge. I then took that uh, order and mailed it to all my contemporaries that had been there, and all of them were able to get it. But I was the first one to get the combat infantry badge by Special Forces. Well, uh, that's about the only thing that we have in common is that we had the same MOS. Um, I was 11 Bravo, just like you were 11 Bravo, but uh, you went and did something with it, and I didn't. But uh, that's the only thing we have in common is uh, 11 Bravo. And anybody that serves knows exactly what 11 Bravo is, I think. Anyway, uh, so what did you think about wearing a beret? Instead of the oh, traditional uh, baseball cap. Uh, John F. Kennedy uh, was able to uh, get that approved for us. He, uh, we had a, one of his aides, uh, we were able to contact him and let him know that we needed to get that brave uh, approved. So as a result, uh, John F. Kennedy came to Fort Bragg, and he asked to have the Green Berets being worn, uh, but that upset the general officers. So as a result of that, when that happened, uh, then that actually authorized and got approval of the Green Beret for wear from then on. Hmm. And uh, the blue braid, or light blue, baby blue braid? Yep. So us infantry folks have to stick together, right? Anyway, going on... um, what uh, what do you think of today's military? Back when you were in, it was still we still had part of the draft, and then we started the lottery. Correct? Yeah, and uh, we've got some sharp people in the military now. The only problem over in the Middle East, uh, we have so many of those people that have five, six, or more tours over in Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, I teach. Uh, at Fort Bragg, uh, I've taught up there probably over 30 times at the Special Forces School. They initially, when our book came out in 1957, they invited me up as a guest speaker just for one tour. And so when I went up and gave, and gave that talk, uh, after that they said, we need to bring you back. So I've now been up over 30 times to teach at the Special Forces School. Uh, and the Special Forces soldiers are captains in this captain's course. Now, they are amazed uh, when I cover the fact that we were robbing banks, robbing pay officers, counterfeiting money. They said, we can't do that now. because, And that's true, because we were trying to destroy North Korea, and yet here they are trying to put Afghanistan and Iraq and those countries uh, back together again. Do you think we have a more attentive military than we did in the 60s? I think our military is a lot better than uh, most people uh, suspect. I am very impressed with our military. When I teach at Fort Bragg, uh, it is just amazing to watch these guys operate and to understand just uh, how sophisticated they really are. 
uh, and to watch and see what kind of shape they're in. Uh, gosh, it's just amazing uh, to, to, to see the things that they can do uh, this day and time uh, at Fort Bragg. And but the big problem is that we're just overusing uh, this great talent that we have because uh, we just don't have enough of. We just can't recruit enough special forces to be able to meet all our demands worldwide. Because years ago, uh, most of the divisions and uh, brigades and so forth were not looking uh, for special forces. Now all of them want special forces personnel. Well, you know, this is something that we do on every show, uh, every military show that we do, is that whatever parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or whoever's listening, if you have a uh, senior in high school or a senior in college that about to graduate and they haven't decided what they want to do, we always recommend that they take a look at the military. I have a son that's in uh, the Air Force that's uh, stationed in Germany. He and his wife have been able to tour all of Europe, and uh, he's done quite well in, in uh, his, his MOS. And um, I'm very proud of, of my young son that uh, chose to go in the military and is making a career out of it. And uh, I expect that, uh, I don't know if I'll see it or not, but I expect by the time he gets out, he'll have a star on his shoulder. And uh, looking forward to that. He's done very, very well. But it's the military's, you know, everybody back in my day, uh, in, in the early 60s or mid-60s, uh, you know, we had so much conflict going on that uh, the military was not looked at. But it's a very good-paying position. Uh, you're not, it's not like uh, what they make it out to be many times that, uh, yeah, in deployments and all this. And whether you go, it doesn't matter which branch you go into. If you're a, if you're a boat jockey, you can go into the Coast Guard or into the Navy and or parts of the Marines, or if you are if you want to be a pilot, you can hit the Navy, hit the Marines, or hit the Air Force, obviously. And um, if you just want to uh, have camaraderie that you'll never be able to shake, never be able to describe, and that's going into the Army. And um, as mentioned many, many times, is that the military, in my opinion is the biggest fraternity and sorority in the world. And it doesn't matter what branch you serve in, if you've served, you have the respect of someone else that served. And uh, it's a great place to be. It's a great feeling to know that you have served your country. And this is the best country in the world. And to give two years or three years or six years or 30 years, 20 years or 30 years, You'll be like Ben, and you'll be... I, I couldn't guess how many flags Ben has in his house, but I bet it's more than one. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a great feeling, wouldn't you concur, Ben? Yeah, uh, one more comment on the 8240th Army unit that I was in in uh, Korea. Um, we actually grew that unit. I had When I first went in, we had 300 North Korean guerrillas, partisans. When I left, we had 800 in my battalion. Uh, and uh, we, out of the 21 different battalions, we actually ended up with over 22,000 North Korean guerrillas trying to overthrow the government of North Korea. 
when that war ended in 1953, uh, some of those disappeared back into uh, North Korea. Uh, some of them came out and went into South Korea. Some of them went to China. Uh, but we actually had ten, over 10,000 came out and went into South Korea. Now 5,000 of those are still alive, and I communicate with them by email uh, probably about once a month at the present time. Um, back in uh, 2016, uh, I had I had a total of uh, about four interviews with uh, MBN TV out of South Korea. They would fly a film crew in from South Korea uh, into Atlanta, Georgia, and interview me here and take that film back and show it to uh, about 20 million people in South Korea. I had an email that I'm looking at right now. Uh, it came in to me on 14 April uh, 2016. It said, this morning, uh, actually on 15 August, it said, this morning, uh, TV MBN aired your one-hour program on national TV. It said the program covered special operations during the Korean War and included our white tigers and the 8240s. We notified all of our white tigers to be alert and they watched the program, and they were very impressed. This is a picture from my home TV. Uh, thank you very much. And this is a picture where he took a picture off of his home TV, and it shows not only the picture of me speaking, but it shows a picture of his knee sitting up in front of the TV set. That's fantastic. Ben, we're going to have to thank you for coming on today, and uh, we're out of time and got to get ready to move out of the way for the next show but thank you so much thank you for the service that you gave for and with your country and congratulations on being a 2014 class inductee into the georgia military veterans hall of fame we salute you and thank you again for your service and uh always ask uh, do you think you'd like to come back and be on one more time Oh, I think so. All righty. Well, we'll be talking to you soon, I'm sure. Thank you again for your service. You're listening to America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.